listening to the PR Wind Down Podcast, the show for public relations professionals who are ready to see real change in the PR industry. We are your hosts, April White and Laura Schooler. Let's get ready to wind down. Laura, do you want to read our horror story of the week? I sure do, April. I love horror stories. Let's hear it. Hold on while I pull it up on my Commodore 64. (laughs) (laughs) Today's horror story. Okay. I worked for an agency where I had three different account leads for my three biggest accounts, none of whom were competent or communicated with each other. Oh God, I already know where this is going. On any given day, they had no clue what I was doing for the other accounts I was staffing. And moreover, didn't care one iota about what else I was juggling. One day I had a media training for my real estate client and a launch for another client on the same date and was expected to be simultaneously pitching the third client too. While I know as a more seasoned practitioner that three clients isn't very many by comparison to industry standards, right? A lot of people have like seven, nine, 11, right? Uh, They were very large accounts. The bigger issue was that I didn't know how to manage up effectively yet, so I constantly felt pulled in a million directions. I didn't know how to tell one of the account leads no without looking defiant or lazy. The end result is that I didn't perform well on almost any, again in italics, of the accounts, and I left eight months later. Needless to say, it was a scarring experience. (laughs) Yeah, okay, so right. So, so... The first thing I think of is like, here we go again with like poor senior management at a PR agency. What a surprise. Shocking. And then the other side of it is that this person had no idea how to manage the, the, the situation. Right. But mostly I think that it's not their fault. It's the management of the firm and of the group for not like, how could you not like look across at your employees and say how many ca- accounts and who, well, they, this person should maybe be under one, you know, senior account lead or two at most, but not every account be under somebody different. Of course you're, how can you do media training and staff an interview at the same time? And in typical, like old school PR, you say something to one of the leads, they're going to get mad. Like, right. So wait, you did, I guess you would have to pick the lead that you thought was least likely to get mad. Right, and so isn't that the joke? The nicer person gets the shaft. Of course, of course. All right, so so, what do you do if you're the junior person in this situation? I mean, obviously the solution there was to leave, which is not a bad one. Or how do you like deal with this, you know, at, the, at that time? It wasn't all just scheduled that day for that day. So, right, so that person probably needed to look ahead and have the foresight to say, hey, this is going to be a disaster. I don't think I'm going to be able to do all three things the same day. Then, and then manage up and say to each of the three leads, you know, hey. Email all I've, three at the same time. Like, you know that I work for each of you and I've got three major events all for each of you on the same day. I need to pull somebody else in. Now, this is an interesting thing because when I was younger at an agency's, that didn't really cross my mind so much either. I didn't really get that to pull other people in because I figured everybody was insanely busy as I was and they probably were. But now as a uh, more senior person sort of overseeing stuff and doing my own, 
like I have no problem with saying, oh, I can't do that or something, or seeing junior people being like, there's no way that, you know, Stan's going to be able to do all of this because he's got to do something for me and them and them. So let's figure this out and talk to him about it. So everybody has to be more proactive, but, but tell everybody who all of the senior leads at the same time and like basically put it back on them. I think that's, I think that's the best advice. Yeah. So, and it usually isn't as scary or negative an ex as an experience as you think it's going to be. However, sometimes it is. <laughs> right. I think those, I think those are my thoughts on that. I don't, I think we kind of covered the, what could you do in that situation? All right. Amazing. Well, we're welcomed today by Austin Sandmeyer. He's the senior marketing manager for North America at Beekeeper. And he's here to chat about life cycle marketing and how PR plays into the sales and marketing funnel. So I think it's going to be a great conversation. Welcome, Austin. Hi. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. It'll be fun. <laughs> it's, going to, it's going to be awesome. Tell our listeners. Hi, Austin. I'm Laura. Hi. Um, <laughs> what, what do you guys actually do? Yeah, so we're an employee communication and operations platform. Uh, we primarily serve the non-desk workforce population. So I think the 80% of the global workforce that doesn't receive a corporate email address. So hospitality, retail, manufacturing, transportation, logistics, those are kind of our core bread and butter industries. And we sell into HR leaders, operation leaders, and CEOs um, to help connect and engage their employees. And just for our listeners, since they're familiar with Slack probably, but not necessarily with Beekeeper, how would you describe the differences between Slack and why would somebody use Beekeeper instead of Slack? Yeah, Slack's amazing. Um, I know a lot of companies that use it, um, but we primarily serve, serve that non-desk worker. So those people that aren't using Slack on their desk work, um, on their desktop computer. So a lot of people will have Slack on their computer. Um, Slack has a great app, uh, but it's really not made for those non-desk workers that have certain things that they need to do or certain SOPs that they need to check out and they need to check out their shift schedules. Those types of things aren't really natively built into Slack where Beekeeper is built that way. We're built for that frontline employee. So it's a more robust offering essentially. Yeah, for sure. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah I, I thought your idea for what we could talk about was really interesting. So I thought we just use it as a jumping off point and see where we go from there. But I really like the idea that there, I mean, a lot of clients are always asking us about how to integrate PR and in their lead gen. And I think hearing it from a client's perspective is going to be really fascinating. And how do you do it in, you know, in-house and what's the best, what are the best approaches to that? And how do you leverage your PR team to make sure you're maximizing what you're doing internally? Yeah, for sure. I guess uh, we kind of work kind of cross-function across everybody, but um, we have all kinds of different strategies to try to get our name out and about. But I mean, PR just plays a crucial play in that funnel of bringing brand awareness and bringing us into those segments. We're kind of like a constantly growing and we're going into new segments and we're going into new industries and like new personas and all kinds of new stuff. So a big piece of that is like, getting your brand out there. Uh, nobody knows us if we don't, if you've never heard of us, never heard a story about us or never even seen us. And I mean, pre-COVID, we always had PR kind of going, but events was a big piece of that. So we would go to like large scale events that like were in those niche markets and had the niche people in it. But obviously COVID has changed that dramatically. Um, and so that has kind of been a flip where we've looked a lot more at looking at PR to get our name in front of those people that we want to, or we would have seen at those events. So Austin, when you get the media placements, do you see immediate conversion into the sales funnel or do you see that, or is it more that when people start to research for a solution and look for a solution, 
they discover you and that you've been in the media and it lends credibility? What, or is it kind of both? I would say the second one more so. Um, right. We don't see like direct conversion per se and they drop into the pipeline and they're just added to the Salesforce campaign. Um, we don't see that as often. Um, you know, a dream world to tie us back to that digital world would be that, but like, it's, it's not that way. Um, right. <laughs> um, and so when we look at it, we see it more as like building our credibility and building our brand awareness and bringing the people into the fold and having those conversations and pushing our topics that we want to the front line of the thoughts and of those people that may be reading those publications. Yeah, it's funny. I've, Laura and I have had this conversation multiple times now about how clients, some of them want, you know, immediate sales driven by an article and that the reality of it is just that most people are going to be finding you when they're doing the research and they're trying to make the decision and they find all that extra credibility mm -hmm. behind, you know, or they've heard your name and then it's, oh yeah, I think there was that company be something and, you know, they might, they're not going to read a news story and go out and use the platform, but they might at least hold it in their mind as a, a solution yeah. to look into when, when the time comes. Yeah. And I think it, I think it tricks a trigger in their mind. Like if, you hadn't, obviously we're primarily targeting people that have thought about their employee base that doesn't have a corporate email address, but there are definitely people that are in companies that have an email address, but have a non-desk workforce population as well that haven't thought about it. So when they read and think about that, they're like, oh yeah, I suppose my large hospitality company does have employees that don't get email addresses. And so it starts like thinking about like, oh, I wonder how that looks. I wonder how that works um, in our company as a whole. So I think it all kind of connects in. Yeah. In terms of how PR fits into your mix, what do you think PR brings to the table that no other aspect of marketing does as well? I mean, you kind of mentioned it a second ago with like credibility. Um, I think PR really brings forward credibility um, to your story, to your topics, to your platform, to like, that is kind of the bread and butter that I kind of see PR helping us play forward, especially if we can have our customers speak on our behalf to a publication about kind of a use case like that is that is my dream and that's what I want every day to have happen our customers love us they rave about us and we put them into a publication and they just you know they're just they're a walking beekeeper ad pretty much um, and so that is just a use case that is like taking something straight from your website and putting it into a publication for a use case like there's nothing better than that um, and so like that's that's the dream and like that's kind of where it fits into my marketing mix I'd say Right, do you right. have do you have uh, success with that? I know it's it's usually pretty hard. The credibility. I just mean to get your customers to agree to do it usually isn't easy. Yeah, I mean it's it's a challenge. They a may not want their competitors to know what they're yeah. doing, yeah. so they don't want like to let the secret out. And B, they might see it as not really helping their business. Maybe it helps your business, but it doesn't help their business. So yeah, um, and so yeah. I completely yeah agree with that. I think. So one of the ways that our company is kind of showcased to be that kind of win-win situation, because like a lot of the times having a publication talk to one of your customers is just a one-sided win for us. Um, like, yes, we get our story told in this awesome publication, Industry Pub. But the second win is kind of showcasing that employee beyond the use of beekeeper um, because they're doing awesome things that is not just beekeeper beekeeper right. fits into their mix of making them an amazing employer um, and so that's kind of what we try to highlight from a use case point of view is like our customers are awesome they're not awesome right. just because they bought beekeeper they're awesome because they're making amazing things happen they're doing an amazing mix and we're a part of it that's cool um, but they're doing some awesome stuff to try to make that a win-win situation right do you do you see any um differentiation in 
how big the company is versus their willingness to participate in PR. So meaning the bigger the company, is it harder to actually get them to give you a case study and the smaller, are they more willing or, or what's, what's the sweet spot for finding a customer that is actually super excited to participate in PR? I, I have a, a reason for asking this, but I want to hear your answer first. You know, my thought before I did any marketing work would be like, smaller the company, easier can do it. They can push them out. We can do case studies. We can do testimonials. They'll be fine. You know, their brand won't matter, but that's the hundred percent lie. And I've fully gotten on the other side of that. Um, <laughs> truthfully, tr truthfully, it hasn't really mattered whether how big a company is or how small a company is. Um, it matters about how they treat and how they work with their brand and how they identify their brand um, and how they see themselves as a company, how they want to be perceived. Um, and I think like that's been way more telling. Okay, that's really did, interesting. Did I fit? Did I fit your question? Yeah, what's your, or what were you what's your reason, April? Well, so we have another startup that's got really, really big Fortune 100. I mean, we're talking about marquee brands that, you know, nobody's, yeah. there's nothing bigger than those. And in some cases, what we've discovered with this client is that they won't actually give you a case study unless you come to the table and say, Wall Street Journal wants to talk to you, Bloomberg, New York Times. It has to be some tier one and I mean, you know, the cream of the crop, right? And yeah. then, and then, only then, if you tell them the opportunity, the reporter, who they want to talk to, the questions they're going to ask, and what day they want to talk to, and the temperature outside. Yeah, I mean, it feels like that. <laughs> and then, and then, eventually, it's like maybe they'll say yes. Yeah. So we have this funny thing where, in this case, we actually have the chicken or the egg issue where we can't pitch the case study until we get the opportunity but we can't get the opportunity until we have the case study. And so we're trying to figure, you know what I'm trying to say? It's like, uh, I don't know which direction to tunnel from. Right. You can't promise the reporter that they can talk to Coca-Cola if you don't have Coca-Cola willing to do it. But the only way the reporter is going to talk to you is if you say, oh, I've got the Coca-Cola. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, gl I'm glad you, yeah. I'm, I'm just using that as that uh, an example. That's not the company. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, what's, yeah, so it's, but it's, it's a great point. So it's essentially that. And then, and then what I've been trying to figure out recently is there a way to get veiled case studies that don't mention the brand that right. you dangle in front of the media. And then mm -hmm. hopefully they'll say yes to, you know, fortune 100, uh, beverage company. That's a leader in the space. Yeah. Use this for this reason. And this is what happened. And these were the results. And then do they say, Yes, we're interested. So this is a new approach, gotcha. right? Because otherwise it's like, anyway, it's a- Have so you seen a, any success with it yet? Or is it still pretty early? It's, it's still too early to say. We need to get the client relation. Yeah, uh, you, gotta, you, gotta scrub, to, you gotta scrub your case studies and see if in aggregate you get interest and then see if the clients are willing to actually talk. Well, and the other funny thing in this regard that I should mention nice is they won't, they won't even do marketing case studies until we get PR up. So in a weird um, way, they're able to use PR to, to get a case study that then can be used in sales. Wow. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. So it's like, yeah, so it's that hard. Like we don't have a case study until we talk to the client management officer. And then- I think that's a new one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's, it's yeah. a- It's really it's doing real it backwards and, <laughs> and right. It feels like a, it's like a Rubik's cube. 
it's like backwards and relying on PR to do many, many people's yes. jobs. Yes. Or make many people's jobs easier, perhaps. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that seems like a challenge. I'm not sure. Yeah. The first part of having like masked ones, I could see like, okay, there's a chance. There's a chance there. Right. And now you're stepping one step further. And that seems much more challenging even. Well, so my hope is that if I talk to this client officer, right, that deals yeah. with the clients, they'll know these things yeah. and can give us these scrubbed, right, <laughs> exactly. Like give us the scrubbed versions that then can be pitched. But it's, yeah, it, it is like a next level challenge in that particular wow. case. Yeah, that's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> so I, yeah, I, I, we've had a lot with this particular client, the smaller clients that they have are a lot more open. Open, yeah. Yeah, they're more open and flexible with whatever they do. Yeah. A lot of our audience, I think, is younger people in PR that are looking to find some sanity in the industry because, as you know, it's a little bit nuts. Um, <laughs> And, and I think I'd love to get your advice, especially as a young, very successful professional. How did you get there? And what can you, what advice can you offer to our listeners if they want to reach it? I mean, not that they're going to try to be a marketing manager per se, but maybe some of them want to be, maybe they don't. How do you, well, you know, what are, what's your secret sauce? Yeah, I mean, uh, the secret sauce is always kind of checking out new opportunities and seeing what's out there. And always saying yes to an opportunity is definitely something. My first couple internships were unpaid. Um, I got my first internship st straight out of hustle and I hate the word hustle. Uh, they had a PR agency. I was a college junior um, at that point and I sent, I liked their app and I emailed them and I was like, hey, do you ever need an intern? I'm looking for an internship in the summer. And they were like, no, we don't need one. And then a couple of weeks later, they had this press release that they wanted to get sent out. And they were like, all right, hey, we're waiting on our press release from our PR agency. Why don't you write this press release and send it over? And so then I wrote it in the fastest I could ever write. And then I shared it with a couple of people that I know can copy edit a little bit. Um, and they reviewed it. And then I sent it over. And I think we did that in a couple hours. And they were like, this is awesome. We've been waiting for a month and a half from our PR agency. We're sending this out. Uh, and so out on the wire it went. Like that opportunity came out of nothing. There's opportunities everywhere if you want to make them. If you like things enough, you can do it. If you, if you like, like things enough. Yeah, if you like things enough. I liked this app <laughs> enough that I wanted to email the founders, go to the website, scroll to the bottom, about or contact, find the email, send an email. I did this for countless companies. When I did my first internship out in the Bay Area, I was here, I was here like 90 days. And I think I went to roughly like 76 networking events in those 90 days. You can, just so you're aware, the networking events out here always serve tacos. So like I got full of tacos that summer, but I was, that's where my dinner was. My dinner was those networking events and going to meet all those people. That's how I met who I met and got to where I got and where I went to where I am. And it worked um, clearly, but, <laughs> um, and so like, I think if there's something that you wanna do as long as you don't need to get paid for it, if you need to make money this second and you have some loans or you have something, this option may not be the best, but once you get a payment method that you can have, these are, should be the things that you should look out for. You should look to continue to grow. You should look for making opportunities where you can make them. Uh, and honestly, at this point, I think you can make opportunities almost anywhere. I love it. That's great. 
now, since you're so good at offering tips, I want to ask you one more. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, I'm sure. So you've hired a few PR firms now, I think, or worked mm -hmm. with a few. Do you have advice for clients like yourself on how to find the right fit and how to hire the right firm for your, for your brand? We're a startup. We scale really fast. We have needs that change constantly. Um, and so like that has required different levels and different needs from PR, I'd say. I would say that to look for fit is to see some of their past work, see some of their customers, see and interact with them as people. Um, those are, those are what I would say are crucial. I've been sold to from very, very large PR agencies to very, very small PR agencies. And it, sometimes I've got that ick test, like, oh, this doesn't quite feel right. There's something weird here. It's not like something super easy to like find, but you can just feel it in your gut. Um, if you're talking to them and something just seems like, wow, there's just so many yeses in this conversation. They can do everything. That might be a red flag you might want to watch out for. I don't know if you'd want someone to check the 100% of the boxes all the time perfectly because they wouldn't change and they wouldn't grow with you as you go. Um, they would be where you are. And sometimes it's okay to say this isn't working out <laughs> between agencies. Uh, it, it, it happens. Uh, or, you know, over the course of a couple of years or whatever, sometimes it's just sort of ran its course and it's exactly nothing negative uh, for, against anybody. No, for sure not. Exactly. There's yeah. like, you, you both, in reality, you're taking two companies and expecting them to grow and match each other always. That's yeah. crazy. That's like saying dating is going to work perfectly when you just put them together on Tinder. Good luck. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so be okay with letting go <laughs> and finding right. something that fits. Right. Well, it's like with any startup. I mean, Lauren, I've had this conversation before when you work, the people that you hire at first aren't always the best fit once you start to grow. Oh, yeah. You have somebody that was perfect when you first started, when you hired them, they were exactly what the company needed. Yep. And then suddenly they're not, right? Because there's some level on which you've grown and, and they didn't grow alongside you. So that can even happen on a micro level. So I think exactly. to ex expect it to always work on a macro level. I mean, it can, it'd be beautiful if that happened, but to, yeah, expect, I mean to expect it and demand it would be unrealistic. Well, I put you on the witness stand here. Do you have any questions for us? No, sure, I mean, sure. yeah, I would love to hear like, what are you guys seeing in your guys's world that you're loving from PR and what are you seeing and you're just like not happening and not enjoying and well, let's go with that one. So many that's questions. A, that's a good one. Laura, do you want to take a first stab or you want me to go for it? Go for it. Well, what I would say that's really interesting is because of COVID and all mm -hmm. the furloughs and layoffs in the past, it was, I would say maybe 25% of the pitches you went out with, they would ask for a byline article. Mm -hmm. And I would say now it feels like on average, it's closer to 75%. I mean, it mm -hmm. has gone up dramatically because the staff is just not there to write the stories themselves. So I've been keeping that in mind and making sure we have really good writers and that, you know, we've got enough of them to keep up with all of this content generation that didn't used to be so central to what we're doing, which yeah. has changed a lot. And, and also the willingness of clients to do byliners, where I think in the past it was sort of like, I mean, and I'm talking years ago, it was like, you kind of wanted to avoid it. It was sort of a pain in the neck. You, you, once in a while you would do it like every, like once every other year. And now it's like almost every other month for some clients, you know, that's what they're doing. They're writing byliners. The reason for doing them is that your name, your title, and maybe a short bio 
is on that article. So somebody who reads it says, oh my goodness, you know, April White is so smart about public relations and marketing, we should hire her. <laughs> or then April White can go and post it on her um, social media and website that this article ran in, let's say, I don't know, Adweek magazine that she wrote. It's a different angle on media relations yep. than a regular interview where you're mentioned in an article or an article that a reporter writes about your company. It's a whole different uh, approach. Yeah, but why not, right? Free content, people are still paying for it. And but but I think it's going to become interesting to see how much longer, how many how many experts can the market sustain? Because then everyone's going to be an expert, and will anyone have a real voice that matters? Very interesting. Yes. Yeah. I, I guess one of my questions, I, w I would love to kind of pick your guys' brain on how you guys see PR fitting into like offline ads and like billboards and things like that, like kind of that off world, old school um, ad marketing. How, do, how does it kind of fit in and how can it tie together to really like, I like to say put a bow on it. Um, how can we put a bow on it, make it all nice? I used to actually do um, PR for a experiential marketing um, company and we would get, and this was in like brand week and media week and ad week still, you know, all existed. And we would do these um, activations yeah. um, and have, you know, these great photos of these crazy things that we would do or stories. And this was with high level um, uh, activations and they would write stories in ad age and ad week and brand week. Those sorts of things are not as prevalent. A lot of those publications have gone away. A lot of them don't have the staff that they used to, but something like, and I keep telling um, April about the publication, The Drum, what they're doing is they're writing articles for readers to, to say that I can go to The Drum and learn new things to help market my company or my brand. So all of the articles are about how companies are, are marketing themselves and new takes on marketing and new angles on it, new technology for marketing, everything. It has to be useful, mm -hmm. every article. It depends on if, if you have an outrageous ad or if you do something that's sort of a misstep, like there was the recent thing, I don't know if you saw the send nudes from Mac and Cheese. So that kind of thing, if you, if you have a misstep and maybe they did that on purpose for PR, and if they did, you know, then, then that, that's good PR. So if you have a billboard that's sensational and outrageous and that kind of thing, I think then there's a, a direct PR tie. Because the media, I think clients sometimes forget, they're paying attention to what you're doing in the advertising digital side too. They may not know they're doing that, Mm -hmm. But it's definitely something that sticks in their mind. So when we pitch them, it's not out of the you know left field. It's it's not totally out of the blue. It's oh yeah, I heard of, I heard of that client somehow. I guess <laughs> you know it's, yeah. it's that right. subliminal thing, and then suddenly oh, oh here they are. Yeah. So I think I think for that it's important too. But when you, and, when you yeah when you were talking about the billboards, uh, that just rang my head of like classic Chick-fil-A with the eat more chicken and the cow painting the billboard. It was just like exactly like that type of thing that was just like top line news. Right. And they did that recent thing too. It was the finger licking good and they, and they blurred out the finger, finger licking. So it's just, it's blurred good. Oh, okay. <laughs> but they, but they did it because of COVID to oh. be like sensitive to the times. Oh, so you're not licking your fingers. You're not. Okay. Wow. I think See, in those everything cases, everything that you're talking about are major brands, yeah. right? So when small companies, you know, and I, I talked to um, somebody I know about 
uh, an, an ad campaign for a smaller, lesser known mm-hmm. brand. And it was, it was unique. It was different. It was sort of throwing advertising on its head, et cetera. And it, we couldn't get any media coverage to, you know, because it, it, it's not a brand that everybody's like, oh my God, you know? Yeah, I think like that exact thing where like it's a smaller brand um, and it doesn't get that like same like reaction from like the media and right. from the coverage. I think, I, I don't know where it's coming from, but from my point of view, I like to think of like, there's a whole world of like direct to consumer companies that are just outlandish in terms of their advertising, their marketing, like some of their ads and just the craziness they are that like, I feel like I put like blinders on to these crazy campaigns and these crazy things that are like, because they're so far out there. Austin, I'm sure you're super busy, so I don't want to keep you if you're trying to jump to a four o'clock, but I'll go. Um, it's, been, it's been super, super fun. Likewise, it's been fun. Thank you so much, Laura and April. Yeah, such a, such a great time. Any of last minute plugs you want to give for Beekeeper yourself? Life? No, I mean, life, check it out, continue going. Like, I don't know. I mean, we're all in this COVID world. It can be very depressing, I think, and people can get down really hard on it. But I mean, it's okay. We're all here. Um, do your best and it's okay to be not okay for a little bit. I don't have any plugs or anything, but if you have any non-desk employees, you know, Beekeeper might be the solution for you. Um, so check it out. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Love it. Thanks so much, Austin. We appreciate it. Okay, talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. So, Laura, I saw this article that you posted, jobs in the pandemic, more are freelance and may stay that way forever. Yeah, it's interesting for a couple of reasons. One is that it's an article that's based on data from some of the job sites like Upwork, which does freelance and temporary type jobs. And then also from ZipRecruiter, if you've ever seen that, which I believe is a site that like has usually full-time jobs that, you know, based on your preferences and that you can apply to. So it's got data from a bunch of these different kinds of companies, which is interesting in PR because it goes to show that this is how you get articles these days, right? If you have data, if you've done surveys, you can talk about how percentages have changed and how the world has changed and what people are doing now as compared to what they were doing six months ago or six years ago. So that is a lot of what the story is about. And the story that I posted was on NPR, but I've now seen this data and these stories come up in more than one place. So whoever the PR firm for Upwork or whatever is, you know, did a good job of getting this out. So that's just sort of from the PR, you know, output side of things. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of the content of this article, there's a few things in here. So it's talking about different things like how freelance workers have increased in the past year, just between 2019 and 2020. So the share of freelance workers and just in that year went from 28% to 36% of the workforce is freelance. So it's went from just over a quarter to over a third. And if you go back to 2014, which is only six years ago, right? Mm -hmm. It was only 17%. And it, it says in this article how what people were anticipating was going to happen in terms of freelance jobs, what they were anticipating happening in three years because of coronavirus happened in three months. Is this true? Two million Americans have started freelancing in the past 12 months, according to a new study from Upwork? That's what it says, right? Two million. You know, maybe a lot of these companies are saying, we don't really need full-time employees. We don't need to pay them benefits. We don't need to give them holidays. And that's kind of a slippery slope, right? For the overall health of the nation. However, as I know, 
you have a lot more flexibility as a freelancer. You don't have to go to the same place every day and work on the same thing every day with the same people every day. Mm-hmm. But there's plenty of people who, and according to this article, really don't want a temporary job or a freelance job because they want that structure. So really to me, the more I keep experiencing this and seeing this and reading about this kind of thing, the, the way you work is sort of a personality thing. And mm-hmm. I think that's becoming more and more, not only prevalent, but allowed. Because I'm pretty sure if I was allowed <laughs> to think about what was my personality, truly, I wouldn't have gotten some like full-time mega corporate job over and over again like I did for almost 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, what's interesting is, first of all, this, this matches our initial business model really well at Trust Relations, which has started primarily with sort of banding together really talented freelancers that on their own wouldn't be able to service a client of that size. So, you right. know, if you're, if you're freelancing by yourself, it is, to your point, a big hassle. It's a big hassle. You have to do your own new business. You have to do your own contracts. You have to deal with the client. You have to do the work Mm -hmm. yourself. If things go south, you have to deal with the legal stuff. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. like all of that falls on your shoulders all by yourself. So it sort of started as this, well, why not, you know, take all these people who are really talented at what they're doing, but don't want to work in a traditional agency format and put together the best of the best of the best and make sure that they're all mapped to each the best client and they're all playing to each other's strengths. And I will tell you what's really interesting is that as we started to offer more and more full-time jobs, in addition to still using contractors, I've been surprised by the number of people who don't want to be full-time and and they're completely committed to the company. And the truth is I feel like because I'm not holding their feet to a fire and owning them, they're probably going to be with the company for 10 years instead of one. And they don't owe me an explanation if they're at yoga class and like texting me when they're done. I mean, it's, you know, some people just, they just like, they prefer that. And other yeah. people want the stability of something consistent and the, the steady paycheck and they need to know where things are coming from. And it's just, it's just better. Right. I, so I do feel kind of fortunate that I had all of that, uh, so many full-time jobs and, 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 you know, one job for almost 12 years. I do feel like that has probably makes people more confident in my ability as a senior person because I did have that. And I have seen younger people who are freelancing or just starting out and they just, we've talked about this before, they just don't know. I mean, how would they know like how a huge company, that's why I'm always talking about publicly traded companies or big brands, because you don't know if you've never worked with these companies. I'm glad to have had that. But like like I said, I swear, I am so glad that I have learned so much since I've been like full-time working for myself and consulting for now, you know, over two years, about two and a half years, because I wouldn't have had this opportunity to do that if I was inside of the walls of like a big structured company. It's very limiting. It's very, it's yeah. to somebody like me. It's very limiting. And again, I think a lot of people who met me outside of those jobs couldn't believe that I had a job like that because I don't yeah. seem... Right. Wild and crazy guy. Right. Right. Like I like, wore like red patent leather <laughs> shoes to work and like, I'm not, this is serious. And people are like, what? My, what? Right. <laughs> the funny thing is I had a, a blue pinstripe suit on like Ann Taylor or whatever, but I had the red patent leather shoes and it was like, they were like, check out schooler on, you know, floor 13 or whatever. I mean, it was a really big deal. <laughs> I, I can't shock people. Freelancers can't be shocked because they're more, right. you know, sort of 
out there doing their thing. Yeah, and I think the huge advantage of being freelance, in addition to um, all the things you mentioned, is that you get to choose what you work on and what you want to do. And normally, when you're at an agency or big company, that's not up to you. I, I, because of the fact that I feel very strongly that no one should have to work on anything that they don't want to, I always ask, always, do you, does this interest you? Do you think you have capacity? Do you want to work on this account? And if they say no, that's it. Freelancers, if you keep giving them work that they don't want to do, you're going to lose them. It's when you get the big full-time job with a big salary and benefits, and maybe you're getting uh, shares because it's a publicly traded company and all the other crazy benefits that companies have now, like, you know, free lawyers or what, I mean, there's tons of stuff that these like major corporations offer, especially to their higher level employees, you know, five weeks vacation, all of this kind of thing, but they own you. They really own you at that point. And so it's like, here's a sports comparison, a baseball player who is coming up and getting paid, you know, the, the minimum, which is not so little anymore, but let's say they're just making 400 grand a year, but they're really good. Once they get their big, you know, long-term seven-year contract, they don't really have to try very hard anymore. And I've seen it. I've definitely seen it. All right. So what not to do from PR pros who know. Okay. Don't, don't let your clients turn your media release into an infomercial. Right. I think this usually is consumer clients like products. Sometimes when clients aren't, you know, haven't done worked with a PR firm before or really haven't done PR before, like real PR, they don't really understand that a press release is actually when it, they were originated, they're supposed to totally mimic an article that you would read in a newspaper. Yeah. Now, when you read, and I'm talking about, you know, back in whatever, 1950, 1940, whatever. So when you're reading an article, it doesn't have ad copy in it. But when you give a lot of times a press release, and I'll tell you on the B2C, the B2B side, it happens in a different way. When you give a release to your client who isn't PR knowledgeable, which that's fine, they're not necessarily supposed to be, but a lot of times they'll edit them and they'll put like, it's almost really like kind of hokey promotional stuff and from a consumer side it's like buy our product it's the best in the world like that would never be in a news story or if it's a b to or b to b like a, a business a real business uh, client a lot of times the quotes that they put in or like change or like nobody would ever say that or they'll put something in there that you're like you know this would be a quote like this isn't like a a third party statement this is like right this is an exposition Right. right, right, right. And so the tough thing is, is a lot of times clients will fight with you about that. So what do you do about that? So I had one recently where the client, because their marketing language is all in the second person, they changed an entire two sentences in between all the third person writing, which is very clear. It was meant to all be in third person as news writing is always. And they changed it to the you, you was throughout yeah everywhere it was you 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 and you know this is and suddenly it was what like how did i don't know so i put it all in quotes mm -hmm. and changed it and said and then put a note in there like this is why i did this you can't just change tenses in the middle of the press release right so that's a good example what i said about quotes the other thing and i keep reading don't do it and then everybody still does it 
is when the quote from the CEO says, I'm so proud that we're partnering with the other company, or we're so excited that we're partnering with the other company. It's like, really, who, are you proud and you're excited? Like, would you, do you ever said that in your life? Hello, April, I'm so proud that you just don't say it. And furthermore, it really doesn't advance the newsworthiness, right, of the story or what the deal was. You should come out talking about how, you know, this deal is important to our shareholders because it's going to, you know, earn us six cents, you know, per share more by the end of the year, whatever. Like you want to talk about why is this important? What is the end game here? What is the business news here? Not, I'm proud, I'm what, you know, and I see it all the time. So I'll remember to never put that in a, in a quote that you read. So how else, so how else do you push back if a client puts in their marketing speak so heavily that the press release no longer looks like news? What else, what other things do you say or how do you manage their expectations and make it to put it back into something that looks press worthy? I mean, you can always sort of scare them by saying something like reporters don't like it when it reads like this. Put it on the, like, reporters won't accept a press release if it's in the third, uh, in the second or first person. I like that. So you could sort of, the you know, the, the scary, the scary reporter in the closet sort of thing. Or if you've got a certain relationship with them, like if you've got a real rapport with them, you can sort of be sarcastic-ish or, you know, be like, look, you got to trust me on this. I've been writing press releases for 20 years. Like, let's try my way. But that has to be a special relationship and right. probably not, you know, within the first month of working for a new, with a new client. So what is one other way to convince your client that they have to write in a, or, let you, like, or let you write. It's, it's not usually that it's usually that they edit what you did and it looks like an ad because they want it to look like they are treating it as though they're treating copywriting Right. Like they put on their website or on their marketing brochure. And they're giving you the same level of feedback with the same right. level of detail that they would to copy Any other writing. working on a brochure. Like okay. not a brochure. Right. So then, so that's, that's how you, you explain to them. You explain to them that a press release is different from other kinds of content and marketing materials in that it's literally supposed to mimic an article that you would read in the Wall Street Journal. And that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> I don't do good imitations. You should, you should end every, every segment should be ended that way. Okay. All right. Thank you for tuning in for the PR Wind Down podcast. And many thanks to Austin for joining us today for an awesome conversation. Yeah, thank you Austin, it was awesome. Whether you've been listening all along or just joined us today, please remember, you can like, rate, or share our show. Also, if you have your own horror story, you can share it with the email address listed in the description below. We cannot wait to wind down with you again next week. <laughs> with you again next week. Thank you. Thanks, bye.